Welcome back to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm going to begin with a word of prayer, and then we will get started. So let me pray. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your grace that is ever at work in our lives, both to change us, um, to will and to work for your good pleasure. Lord, I pray, um, even just for this morning, as we get into Pilgrim's Progress, that would be a profitable time, that we would glean from the biblical truths that are contained within and that we'd be more conformed to the image of your Son as a result. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Come on in, grab a seat. Like I said, there's some notes on the back. Um, just curious, you don't have to be reading along um, in this class. How many of you are going to try and read along in the book with this class? I was. A few of you. Okay. So some of you. Is there, is there anyone here that's reading it for the first time? A few? Okay. Great. Awesome. I, I will try to not spoil the book, but um, it's kind of... it's. Because it's so well known, it's kind of like with pop culture. Maybe it's kind of been spoiled for you already. But do you have a question? Yes. Le- yes, that's count. Yes, yes. Audiobooks count as books. I, if you asked me like six months ago, I would have said no. Um, but now, the reason why is because I have Spotify Premium. Now they have free audiobooks, and I'm like, this is actually kind of fun because I'm not paying for them. So, so it's enjoyable. So yes, it counts. It counts if you're doing an audiobook. Okay. I always like to begin just kind of with a quick recap of the previous weeks, and then we'll, we'll jump in this morning. So to bring you up to speed, just a quick recap. We uh, began by starting with how should we study the Pilgrim's Progress? There's three points here. We engage a text on its own terms. Simply, we need to read the book, okay? We don't need to consult secondary sources in particular, you know, analyze all these different things. Just read the book at face value. Um, that's number one, the most important thing. Number two, understand Bunyan's apology. That's that introduction, uh, that poetic one. You know, maybe you, you read it for the first time, you're like, I don't really know what he's saying, I'm just going to skip this. Um, I've done that, okay? Um, but it's actually really helpful here, okay? Um, he actually sets out why he's writing what he's writing. And then also be familiar with Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. This was written um, earlier on in Bunyan's life when he was imprisoned at a, a different period. Um, he wrote kind of a spiritual autobiography to encourage his church. And so I'll bring in some, some practical points when necessary. And then we looked at why should we study it. More importantly, um, not just how, why. It's thoroughly biblical. Um, it is doctrinally attractive. It clearly proclaims the need for sanctification, for growth in the Christian life. And then finally, it's a really good story, in my opinion. Uh, we looked at the historical context briefly. I'm not going to get into that. Um, if you want... Like I said, they're all online, so if you want to listen to those, you can access it on Spotify. You can go on the church website. If you miss a week, you want the notes or something like that, just email me, text me. I'm more than happy to send them to you. And then we got into his apology, kind of this introduction to the book. Sorry, my computer is lagging a little bit. Um, He says, what's his main purpose here? I did it my own self to gratify. This was a book born out of self-interest. He didn't set out to write an international bestseller and to strike it rich. There's no incorrupt motives, you know, or anything like that. He was a creative uh, mind, and he wanted to write this book. He gave it to others to see, hey, is this a, a profitable book? And they were like, yeah, you should get this published. And that's what happened. Mainly people critique him uh, because it's cloudy. Um, this is unclear. We don't know exactly what's being said. He defends, hey, Scripture has examples like this, right? We see um, Paul use the word allegorical in Galatians chapter 4. Um, there's typological language. There's figurative language all throughout Scripture. If the Bible can do it, how come I can't? And I think he's right. Um, can't condemn it for that. He says, what's the end goal? What does he say? You're good, 
right? This is why I'm writing this. Not just he wrote it out of self-interest for fun, but then the purpose became, I actually want to do spiritual good to other people. Um, so not a, a selfish means. I really like this uh, section here on, you know, this fisherman. What he's trying to be is a fisher of men and convince people, persuade them of the gospel. Uh, he then wraps up kind of with this final commendation. This book will make a traveler of you if by its counsel you its rules will do. It will direct you to the Holy Land. If you will, its directions understand. Yes, it will make the slothful active be, the blind also delightful things to see. This book can show you the path to heaven. You can know God's will for your life. It will make the lazy active. It will open the eyes of the blind. He ends by asking some questions. Would you see a truth within a fable? Oh, then come hither, lay my book, your head and your heart together. And then where we left off, the very opening paragraph there. As I walked... Through the wilderness of this world, I came upon a certain place where there was a den, a jail. And I lay down in that place to sleep, and as I slept, I dreamed a dream. He begins by describing this world as a wilderness. What do you think he has in mind? That's the first question you have on your notes there. This is actually a question you guys can think about and answer if you want. Why does he describe the world as a wilderness? What do you think he has in mind? Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Anyone else? Who said that? Israel's wilderness wanderings, right? Remember that Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And then also, not coincidentally, who else wanders in the desert? Not for 40 years, but for 40 days. Great Sunday school answer, right? Jesus. Yes. Yeah. And it's not coincidence, right? There is significance to that, that Jesus succeeds everywhere where Israel failed. Uh, yes? I would say also because the world is trying to destroy us, or Satan is trying to destroy us using the world, and that's why I wouldn't see the world in this. For sure, yeah. There's definitely that in mind. I think um, thinking through Bunyan, what he has in mind, um, is clearly going back to the wilderness wanderings that we see in Scripture. He's trying to be thoroughly biblical. And also, uh, historically, think about this. Um, at this point in Bunyan's life in the 1670s, the Puritan hope for a glorious Christian England, a Christian nation, those are pretty much done. Okay? Charles II is back on the throne. Okay? So, so the hopes that the Puritans had of reforming the church, reforming the, uh, England, that we can have just this glorious future where God is glorified and honored in this nation, that's done away with. You see what I'm saying? So he's seen this world not as a beautiful, glorious place where all our hopes and dreams are going to come true, uh, you know, which would be common in a post-millennial thought, um, which was common among the Puritans. He's saying, yeah, that's not the case. That actually, as I look out on this world, I actually see more of a desert, a dry, desolate place that I'm a pilgrim passing through. This world is not my home. Okay? So that's probably likely what he has in mind there. Certainly the biblical uh, reference to the wilderness account and then also the current historical situation going on in England. He writes that this uh, comes when he was... Uh, in a den, uh, the jail, right? Um, I would then take it at face value that he wrote this when he was in jail. Um, just taking it on its own terms, that's what he says. All right, then we get into the story proper, okay? We get into that opening paragraph is Bunyan saying, here's what's going on in my historical day and age. I'm walking through the wilderness of this world. I'm in jail, and now I dreamed a dream, 
and now the story of Pilgrim's Progress actually begins, okay? Does that make sense? Here's the opening paragraph. He says, I dreamed, and behold, I saw a man clothed in rags, standing in a certain place, with his face turned away from his own house, a book in his hand, and a great burden on his back. I looked and saw him open the book and read therein, and as he read, he wept and trembled, and not being able to contain himself any longer, he broke out with a lamentable cry, saying, what shall I do? Here we're introduced to the main character. We don't know his name yet. We later uh, know his name is Christian, okay? Um, He later says that before he became a Christian, his name was Graceless, okay? He is the main character in Pilgrim's Progress. And what is he described as? What is he wearing? Rags, yes? You see that, right? Now understand here, and this is key at the outset, Bunyan is allegorically describing an unbeliever, okay? He is allegorically describing an unbeliever. We don't have to guess what Bunyan is trying to communicate here because he gives us a lot of scripture references, okay? So you guys are reading the book there, you're going to see the footnote. Oh, four scripture passages. So he actually tells me what he's trying to communicate. We, we, we don't have to guess, okay? I'm not always going to do this, but for this morning, um, I did want to actually put all four verses that he references up on the screen. Um, as you're reading along, I'd encourage you, have your Bible also with you. He mentions a scripture reference. Okay, go look it up. That might help you understand what he's saying. That first one there, Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment or filthy rags. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Bunyan is portraying a man who is unrighteous. He is unclean. All our good deeds apart from Christ are like filthy rags. We're dead in sin. We're condemned by our iniquities. Now, no doubt, to the other citizens of the city of destruction, this man, Graceless, is actually really well-dressed, right? He looks good, right? Physically, he's got clothes on, okay? Bunny is not talking about it. He's talking about spiritually, right? Uh, unbelievers, biblically speaking, are they clothed in filthy rags? Spiritually speaking, not physically, right? Yes, right? They are condemned. They are dead in their iniquities and sins. No doubt they think, hey, he looks fine. But spiritually, he is clothed in filthy rags. And we all are um, unclean before a holy God. The next one he mentions there, Psalm 38, verse 4, For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. So in that opening paragraph, he describes a heavy burden on his back. And what is that burden? Sin, right? It's not just sin in and of itself. I would argue it's the weight of sin against his conscience, okay? That's key to remember, actually, for later on. Uh, It's the weight of sin that he understands it and believes it, that it lies against him in his conscience. We're guilty. We're convicted. It's almost like we can't stand up with this burden, this weight of sin on our backs. Those are the first two he mentions. The next one here, Habakkuk 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. This is an interesting quotation by Bunyan. I don't know if in context it actually means what he wants it to mean. Um, but he makes it work, okay? Um, Run, in context here, probably has the idea of Habakkuk. Write the vision, make it plain, so that you can read it quickly. You you can understand it quickly. Um, Not that you read it and then you run away, like, physically, okay? Um, But that's what he takes it as, right? He takes it as, whoever understands the message of God, let him flee to Christ, let him run. Um, And so, I'll just leave it at that, but I think not exactly what Habakkuk had in mind, but that's okay. 
Luke 14, 33, his final one here. So therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. So here's the emphasis right at the beginning, this opening introduction to graceless, or the man later known as Christian. Will he renounce all that he has? Will he leave everything behind and follow after Christ and be his disciple? So you see, there's a lot going on here in this opening paragraph. An unbeliever at the cusp of setting out to follow Christ. Let me put that opening paragraph back, just kind of highlighting these things. Uh, He says he's turned away. He's not looking at his house. He's not looking at his own community. He's not looking at his own lifestyle. He's looking elsewhere for questions. He's looking, or excuse me, he's looking elsewhere for answers to his questions. Where is he looking? What does it say? A book, a book in his hand, right? Later on, I looked and saw him open the book and he reads therein. What's the book? It's not Jesus. It's the other Sunday school answer. The Bible, right? Comes very clear. That is what he is reading. Uh, he has a great burden on his back. We've already talked about this, a growing consciousness of sin and personal guilt before God. It's weighing down on him, uh, the weight of God's law, so much so that he weeps, he trembles under the conviction of sin. And I'm sure in, in our lives, right, uh, before we came to Christ, and maybe even after, there are moments where we could genuinely say, yeah, that was us, right? Where you're maybe weeping or your soul is distraught, you're weighed down because of the weight of God's law on your heart and soul. And he ends by saying, what shall I do? The very end there, we see that a number of times throughout the book of Acts. The apostles, they preach the good news and the people cry out, what shall I do? What can I do to be saved? And this is very important to remember for this morning. What do the, how do the apostles respond? What do they say? They say a couple of different things. Repent and believe, right, in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Turn from your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's one. Or repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. They're saying the same thing. And this is key. Go to Christ, okay? Go to Jesus Christ and repent and trust in him. Remember that for later, okay? So he goes home, uh, Christian or graceless. He doesn't know what to do at this point. He's seeking to restrain himself. Uh, He can't be silent forever. He eventually cries out to his wife and children. He says, Oh, my dear wife, and you, the children of my deepest affections, right? His his bowels, his heart, his most inner being. I, your dear friend, am myself crushed. I'm undone by reason of a burden that weighs heavily upon me. Moreover, I am certainly informed that this, our city, will be burned with fire from heaven, in which fearful overthrow both myself and With you, my wife and sweet babes, talking about his children, shall come to miserable ruin, except, which alternative is not apparent, some way of escape can be found whereby we may be delivered. He's probably alluding to 2 Peter 3, 7, which talks about fire from heaven being stored up for the day of judgment for those who do not trust in Christ. He understands this. He recognizes that judgment is coming. But if you notice at the end there, what does he say? Like, we're going to come to miserable ruin, except, which alternative is not apparent, some way of escape. So judgment is coming. Does he know of a way of escape right now? No. He's like, we're toast, and that's it, okay? And that's why he's perplexed. There's nowhere to go. I don't know what to do, and that is causing him to tremble. He goes on in the story. At this, his close relatives of his were greatly amazed. They're astounded at what is going on. It was not that they believed to be true what he said to them. They think he's crazy. But rather because they thought some frenzied distemper, some disorienting disease. He's got a mental condition. Something's wrong with his head. Okay. Consequently, 
With the night approaching and with the hope that sleep might settle his brains, they got him to bed all with all haste. Yet the night was as troublesome to him as the day, so instead of sleeping, he spent that evening in sighs and tears. They think he's a lunatic. They think he's sick in the head. I mean, is not that how the world sees Christians, right? They see us as crazy. I mean, even 1 Corinthians 1, what does it say? The gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. This is ridiculous. This is idiotic. They hope that he'll sleep it off. But I mean, we even know this from experience, right? If the Spirit of God has truly begun to work in someone, are they going to sleep it off? No. No, right? If God is calling someone to himself, they will surely come. The morning comes, um, and they think he's doing worse and worse. The family even scolds him. They deride him. Um, eventually, they just simply neglect him. There's like, there's no hope helping you. We're just going to leave you over here. I don't know about you guys, but in your life circumstances, I mean, obviously, we have those who reject us. Hey, no, that's not true. I don't want to hear about it. I think more often for not, maybe it's just, or more likely for us, we talk about the things of Christ, and a lot of people, there's uncomfortable. Just stop talking about that. Let's just change the subject, right? It's not outright rejection. It's just a suppression. I don't want to hear about that. That's uncomfortable. Change the subject, right? Or anytime, you know, you start talking about Christ, you know, you know kind of inside jokes or whatever, and it's just like, yeah, yeah, whatever, okay? Um, clearly going on here with Graceless as well. Now I noticed on a particular occasion when he was walking in the fields that he was, according to his habit, reading in his book and greatly distressed in his mind. And as he read, he burst out as he had done before, crying, what shall I do to be saved? There's a possible allusion here um, with uh, grace abounding, paragraph 229, uh, which deals with Bunyan's assurance of salvation, comes later on in his life. And the reason why is it starts there. He says, now, as one day I was walking in the field. Um, And so very clearly there's some link there. So it's it's possible he's alluding to that. Um, Here, Graceless again, he's crying out, what shall I do to be saved? I also saw that he looked this way and that way as if he would run. Yet he stood still because, as I perceived, he could not tell which way to go. I then looked and saw a man named Evangelist coming to him who asked him, for what reason are you crying? Here we're introduced to a vital character, evangelist. This is his introduction. I believe he appears two other times in the story, maybe three, um, at least twice. Uh, evangelist. We need to be careful here at this point, not reading our 21st century context back into 17th century uh, England. Okay? And what I mean by that is Bunyan does not have in mind a traveling preacher who goes here and there, he passes out decision cards, you know, he preaches some revival sermon or something like that, and people walk down the aisle, okay? How do we know that? Well, because that person didn't exist in 17th century England, okay? That's actually a fairly modern phenomenon, um, starting more so in kind of like the 18th, 19th century America, especially with Charles Finney and the Second Great Awakening and all that stuff, okay? Um, That is not what he has in mind. What is he referring to when he says evangelist? He's talking about a faithful church pastor, okay? He's talking about a normal pastor, probably here, um, John Gifford, the pastor of the Baptist church who um, helped lead him to Christ. Okay, so that's likely who he has in mind. This really shouldn't be too hard for us to understand. 2 Timothy 4, 5, Paul charges Timothy to what? Do the work of an evangelist, right? He's calling a pastor to do the work of an evangelist. Pastors are called to preach the gospel. They are to counsel unbelievers, how to come to Christ. They're to counsel believers, how the gospel applies to their life and sanctification. It's not just the public ministry of the word that a pastor is called to, but the private ministry of the word, right? 
uh, one-on-one or in small groups, things like that, okay? So evangelist referring to a faithful pastor. And by the way, you're going to see throughout Pilgrim's Progress, sometimes we think it's a very individualistic journey, and the church, the priority of it, isn't really there. That's just wrong. Um, There's actually a large emphasis on the local church and the importance of pastors. Um, So just tuck that away for later. He comes to him, evangelist. He asks him, why are you crying? Christian responds. He answered, sir, I understand by the book in my hand, the Bible, that I am condemned to die. And after that, to come to judgment. And I find that I'm not willing to do the first, nor able to do the second. What's going on here? Again, the scripture references help. He quotes essentially Hebrews 9.27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. He understands that he is going to die, that he is going to face the judgment of God. He's not willing to die. He's not able to stand before uh, the throne of God in judgment. He knows that he will be condemned. He realized that weighed against God's law, he is found wanting, as are we all, right? Apart from the imputed righteousness of Christ. Then said evangelist, why are you not willing to die since this life is accompanied with so many evils? The man answered, because I fear that this burden that is upon my back, this weight of sin, will sink me lower than the grave, and I shall fall into Tophet. He's like, oh, Tophet, yeah, I know what that, I say that all the time. No, probably not. You're like me, okay? Uh, Tophet means place of burning. It's actually mentioned in, he puts in the references there, Isaiah 30, verse 33. It's actually mentioned a number of times throughout uh, Jeremiah. And also I think in 2 Kings, um, a couple of times. Tophet uh, is also called the Valley of Hinnom, okay? The Valley of Hinnom. This was a, well, it was in Israel, but it was a place where they would follow pagan practices and sacrificing their children in the fire. Um, most often to Molech, okay? Um, God says in the prophets that this uh, valley of Hinnom will later be called the valley of slaughter in that God is going to judge Israel for their sin who have engaged in these practices and this place is going to overflow with bodies in God's judgment, okay? Um, That is what is going on there. And then in the New Testament, this word, valley of Hinnom, is essentially transliterated into Greek. Do you guys remember when Jesus talks about Gehenna, Okay? So you notice even the, the link between the two, Gehenna, Hinnom, like you see the hin, uh, hin part, okay? So it's transliterated from Hebrew into Greek there. Um, all in all, what is Bunny referring to? Hell, okay? He's referring to condemnation, judgment, okay? That is what is going on. And sir, if I'm not fit to go to prison, then I'm quite sure I am not fit to go to judgment. And as a consequence, to execution. And the thoughts of these things make me cry. Saying, I, I can't go to prison in this life. And I know if I know that's the case, I'm not fit to go to judgment. I know if I go to judgment, I'm going to be executed. He's going to be condemned. He's overwhelmed with guilt and the fear of coming into judgment. Then said evangelist, if this is your condition, then why are you standing still? He answered, because I do not know which way to go. Then evangelist gave him a parchment scroll on which was written, uh, which was written within, fly from the wrath to come. I find it interesting how evangelist in this setting, he doesn't rush to give graceless or Christian the gospel. He's always like asking like probing questions. He's like, hey, what are you doing? Why are you standing here? Well, you know, this world is evil. How come you don't want to depart it? You know, well, what, like, do you see what I'm saying? Like, he's not just like, boom. Here's what you need to do. I think he's doing that. He's patiently asking probing questions to get graceless to become convinced in his own mind. I say this, if you're having questions or you're having a conversation with an unbeliever or something like that, even with a Christian, 
it's more helpful actually when they ask questions. Sometimes people don't like this when I do this, but I respond by asking questions. Like, well, you know, what about this and the Bible with this? You know, how does that reconcile? I was like, well, what do you think? And it's, it's like, well, I asked you. Um, I was like, I'm asking you. Because it helps, it helps them think through their answer, right? Not just because I'm just giving them an answer and I should take it with that. Come up with the actual biblical reason and response. And so I think that is what evangelist is doing here. He gives them a scroll, uh, which Bunyan notes as conviction of the necessity of flying in the footnotes there. And he quotes John the Baptist preaching the scribes and Pharisees. Remember that? You know, you brood of vipers, wicked people, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Christian knows this. I know I need to flee from the wrath to come, okay? Help me out here, man. Like, how do I escape? Where do I go? Therefore, the man read the scroll and looking upon evangelist very carefully said, which way must I go to escape? Then said evangelist, pointing with his finger beyond a very large field, do you see a wicket gate, small gate, over there? The man replied, no. Then he was asked, do you see a shining light not quite so far away? He said, I think I do. Then said evangelist, keep that light before your eye and go directly towards it, and then you shall see the gate at which when you knock, you will be told what you are to do. This is a key point we're going to pause on a little bit, okay? I think many readers, myself included, when they're first reading A Pilgrim's Progress, they believe that Christian is saved when he comes to the cross and his burden falls off his back, okay? Um, I just always assumed that. It wasn't actually until a class in seminary where actually we were talking about something completely different. And the professor there just in passing was like, yeah, it's actually not true. Christian saved uh, when he comes to the wicked gate. I was like, really? I've never heard that before. And then actually reading all these other guys who are, you know, Pilgrim's Progress scholars and all this stuff. They're all like, yeah, he saved at the wicked gate. I was like, really? Okay. Um, And my hope, especially when we get to the wicked gate, I want to show you why I think it's actually very clear that that is what Bunyan intends. Uh, But just where we're at this morning, I think it's helpful um, to think through this here. What is the wicked gate? Or, I mean, I think you guys have this on your notes. I'm even tipping my hand here. I'm not just saying by what is the wicked gate, who is the wicked gate? Hint, hint. Sunday school answer, hint, hint. Uh, Or, when is Christian saved, okay? I'm going to give a couple of points here um, that aren't really like, that's not exactly what you would write. These are just kind of like, the door equals Jesus, just by the way, if you want the, that's what I'm going to argue. Um, and how do we know that? Well, the account of grace abounding, okay? In grace abounding, there's an interesting point um, where Bunyan, after he's speaking to the four women um, at the stairs of the Bedford Church, and he's convicted about the necessity of the new birth, and he's like, wow, I've never been saved. Um, he talks about how the state and condition of the people of that church were represented to him almost like in a dream. This is kind of a subpoint on the subpoint. Okay, before Bunyan is saved, he places a large emphasis on like visions and dreams. Okay, you read that in, in Grace Abounding. After he is saved, he doesn't put as much emphasis into them. And when he talks about you know it's like Jesus spoke to me or something like that, he makes it very clear not that I audibly heard him, but that I recalled to mind what he said in Scripture. Okay, there's a big difference between those two. One is. I would just say pagan mysticism. The other one is biblical Christianity, okay? Where oftentimes throughout your life, you'll be going through this life and the Spirit calls to mind a passage of Scripture or you're convicted of something, okay? That, that's not some like weird, you know, like, 
eebie-jeebies, you know, I got this weird revelation of Christ. That's God working through his word, okay? I mean, often that maybe you'll read a passage, and then 10 years later, God's going to call it to mind, and it's going to convict you to do something. You see what I'm saying? There's a big difference between the two. Okay. He was emphatically not a mystic, okay? And that's very clear we're going to get to. He does not like the Quakers, okay? The Quakers were mystics. We'll get to that, okay? Anyways, he writes about this little church, okay? Represented kind of like a dream. And it's, there's like a wall, this is in his dream, he's picturing a wall between him and the Bedford church, okay? And it's like the Bedford church is basking in the glory of the sun, okay? They are understanding Christ, and they're just living the Christian life, and he loves it, okay? He's on the other side of the wall, and he's like, man, how do I get over there? How do I get to experience the glories of God as that church? And he writes about there's this wall, but there's like this small hole in this wall. There's a gate through this wall to get to where they are. He writes in Grace Abounding, and the gap which was in this wall I thought was Jesus Christ, who is the way to God the Father. Notice the scripture references here, John 14, 6, Matthew 7, 14. But for as much as the passage was wonderful narrow, even so narrow that I could not, but with great difficulty, enter in thereat, it showed me that none could enter into life but those that were downright earnest, and unless also, they left this wicked world behind them. I love this last part here. For here, going through, was only room for body and soul, but not for body and soul and sin. Or you can't come to Christ and bring your sin with you. You have to throw it at the foot of the cross. So you see, yes. So sin can't go in, then the burden, is that why people think that you get saved at the cross? Yes, we'll get there later. Yes, okay. But you see, in both places, he's talking about the wicked gate, or he's talking about this opening, Okay. Is opening the wall. And here in Grace Abounding, what is the, the entryway into the Christian community? Let's say, what, who is it? What does it represent? Jesus. Jesus. Okay. So just keep that in mind. And he quotes John 14, 6, which Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ is himself eternal life. You could say Jesus Christ himself is the gospel. And also in both places, here in Grace Abounding and in Pilgrim's Progress, he references Matthew 7, 14. At both these points, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Okay, second point. Do I have it up there? Nope, sorry. The account of the straight gate. Okay, in his other book, The Straight Gate, he makes this very clear that the door is also Jesus Christ. It's like, you can state it very clearly. This door is Jesus Christ, as also himself doth, t- doth testify, saying, I am the door. Referring to John 10 and the good shepherd, right? By this door, men enter into God's favor and mercy and find forgiveness through faith in the shed blood of his son and live in hope of eternal life. So I'd argue, based on grace abounding, based on the straight gate, and based also on all the scripture references that he's using in all three of those places, being the same, that he's, his message is consistent, okay? He's consistently saying that Christ himself is our salvation. We must come to him. He is the gateway to the Christian life. And then the third one here. I'm not going to put it up here on the slide because I want you guys to think with me, okay? What should, this goes back to Acts, which I had you remember, what should a good biblical evangelist do? When someone says, hey, I'm guilty, convicted of sin, what do I, what, what should I do? What do the apostles do in Acts? What do they say? Go to Christ, right? Go to Christ and turn from your sin. You need to trust in him. Flee to him for salvation. This is what pastors, this is what preachers, this is what all, down to us. 
When people are convicted of sin, we point them to Christ. It's actually very interesting. Historical side note here. Um, I'll just mention briefly the Marrow Controversy. This was a controversy in the Church of Scotland in the 18th century. Um, Very similar to this kind of question we're thinking about here. And essentially the debate was this, whether someone must forsake sin and repent before coming to Christ. You must forsake your sin, repent of everything before you come to Christ. In other words, if you're like, that sounds kind of confusing. In other words, must someone show evidence of their turning to Christ before we can give them the gospel? Okay. Now, the Marrow men, most notably Thomas Boston among them, came down on the side saying, no, that is not correct. No, in fact, we are to offer the gospel freely to all men. We tell men to come to Christ. That is what we are to do. There's a lot of theology um, that we could talk about here, but I would just say this, is that the grace of God imparted to us through the Holy Spirit in regeneration actually empowers us to repent and turn from our sins. You can't tell someone who's dead in their sin, hey, get, get your life right, fix it up, right? That's legalism. You need to do that to be saved. No, when you're saved, the Holy Spirit changes us such that we actually even desire to turn from our sins. See, the, like, that's a very big emphasis difference, okay? We want to make sure we're putting the right emphasis on the right syllable. Um, ha ha. Okay. All this is to say, I think Bunyan would agree with the Merrowmen. We call men to Christ regardless of preparatory signs or anything like that. Evangelist here doesn't say, hey, you need to forsake this. Stop doing that. He points him to the wicked gate. He points him to Christ because that's what a good biblical evangelist does. You point people to Christ. Do you see the wicked gate? That is what he says. Sorry, I didn't put it up there. What should a good biblical evangelist do? Point people to Jesus. Point people to Christ. That's what you do. Therefore, the man read the scroll. This is going back here, right? Which way must I go to escape? Evangelist said, point with his finger beyond a very large tree. Do you see a wicked gate? The man replied, no. Here's what's very interesting. He says, go to Christ. And, you know, it's as if Christian is like, I don't understand what that means. I, I don't actually see him. Okay. So what does evangelist say? Do you see a shining light not quite so ha. Do you see a shining light not quite so far away? And we know from Bunyan's footnotes, what does the light refer to? Nope. Did anyone read the footnotes? Where are the scripture references? Do you remember? Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet. The shining light is the scriptures. He's saying you need the word of God. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 2 Peter 1.19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. If you don't clearly see Christ, go to the word of God and you will see him clearly revealed therein. This is just a side note here. Uh, Bunyan's first book uh, that was published in 1656 was called, um, where I have it on here, Some Gospel Truths Opened, and mainly it was a critique of the Quakers. The Quakers believed that each and every person had a pure inner light, okay? In other words, they could understand God's will apart from the Holy Spirit and apart from scriptures. And if you're like, that doesn't sound right, you're right, that's not right, okay? That's not good. Um, It actually became to the point where, like, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit are pretty much unnecessary. You, you don't even really need it because you have the pure inner light within. Um, and so Bunyan writes against that. 
He says, that is not right. We're pressed for time, so I'm not going to give you... I'll, it's a long title, okay? It was kind of a joke, I was going to say. I love here, you know, it's like, some gospel truths open according to the scriptures, or I love their paragraph subtitles. It's like, if you want to know what this book is about, blah, 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 blah. I love the, where he says here, right? You know, he's talking about this false doctrine against those blustering storms of the devil's temptations, which do at this day, like so many scorpions, break loose from the bottomless pit to bite and torment those that have not tasted the virtue of Jesus by the revelation of the Spirit of God. They just don't, you just don't write, we just don't write theological books the same way we used to. Like, Let them be anathema. Yes, that is a better title. Okay. All right. So Bunyan, yeah, he opposed the Quaker's doctrine. Then said evangelist, keep that light before your eye. Go directly toward it. Then you shall see the gate. Notice the footnote. And this is where the footnotes are really helpful. What does he say? Christ and the way to him cannot be found without the word. So he's just talked about the wicked gate and the light. And he's saying Christ is the wicked gate and the way to him cannot be found without the word. Okay. I think his footnotes make it pretty clear. We need the special revelation of God's word. Yes, in general revelation, we recognize um, that there is a God. He's created all things. But general revelation does not give us the gospel. We need the special revelation of God's word to point us to Christ, to know that we need him. So I saw in my dream that the man began to run. He had not run far from his own door when his wife and children, perceiving his departure, began to cry out to him so that he might return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. He puts here Luke 14, 26, uh, which says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So he did not look behind him, but rather fled toward the middle of the plain. He mentions uh, Genesis 19:17 and Sodom and Gomorrah. This will come back up later, actually, at the end of part one, um, where he talks about there's a memorial to Lot's wife as a reminder to not look back to the things of this world. We pursue Christ. We cannot look back and desire the things of the world. So here, end of chapter one, we see Christian. He's determined and firm in his conviction to flee to the wicked gate. He's heeding the directions of evangelists. He's forsaking all to gain Christ, okay? I wanted, we, we've got like 10 minutes. Technically, we only have three, two, but I feel like we can go a little longer. Um, if you guys are okay with that. I'd like to get through chapter two because it's really short. I just got a couple points. Is that okay if we do that? And if you have questions, you can ask me at the end. Is that fine? Okay, that's what we're doing, even if it wasn't fine. Okay, short chapter. We're introduced to obstinate and pliable. Obstinate and pliable. You have to realize in Pilgrim's Progress, the characters embody their names, Okay. So if a guy is obstinate, that's his name, what do you think he's going to be? Obstinate. Yeah, he's going to be hard-headed and stubborn. Okay? If a guy's name is pliable, you think he's going to be what? Pliable, easily influenced, easily swayed. Okay? That's exactly what happens. Okay? Just remember that. Okay? So these two men, obstinate and pliable, they come out uh, to persuade Christian to come back to the city of destruction. He writes at the very beginning of chapter 2, the neighbors came out to see him run. And his footnote here says, they that fly from the wrath to come are a gazing stock to the world. And it's a very powerful reminder, right? Often the world thinks Christians are just, it's funny. Like we can watch them, it's entertaining, right? Like you guys live such boring, pathetic lives. You don't have any fun. You're giving money to people you don't even know. Like you guys are just ridiculous, okay? And that's what he's portraying here. They think how foolish we are. So anyways, opposite and pliable, they come out to get him. Christian seeks to persuade them to come along 
with him. There we go. What? Obstinate. He cracks me. I mean, it's sad, but he just kind of cracks me up too. What? And leave our friends and our comforts behind us. Yes. Christian, now claiming the pilgrim name of Christian. Because all of that which you cling to and should forsake is not worthy to be compared with the little of that which I am seeking to enjoy. And if you will go along with me and persevere, you shall obtain even as I myself. For where I go, there is more than enough to spare. So come away with me and prove my words. Again, like I said, obstinate, he's hard-hearted. He's astounded at being called to leave all his worldly comforts. Christian responds that things of this world are worth so much more. The things that are uh, unseen are worth so much more than the world. Right? He alludes in the footnotes there to Luke 15, 17, uh, which is interesting. That's the prodigal son coming to his sense. You know, I'm wallowing here with the pigs. I can go to my father and enjoy so much more. There's more than enough grace. You guys can join with me. Side note here. Like I said, we don't know the man's name, technically in the book, until here. And his name is Christian. But then he puts there in parentheses, you know, he's claiming the name of Christian, right? But... He has not come. Let's say you even think he's saved at the cross or the wicked gate. He hasn't come there yet. So is he a Christian in the story? No, I would argue no. Okay, that's pretty clear. So why do you think Bunyan says this? What do you think? Here's more of the question. What do you think Bunyan is trying to communicate here? Because of time, I'm just going to give you the answers. Okay, two. There's one that is far more likely, in my opinion. I'll give you that one second. One, Bunyan could be communicating... Uh, he could be talking about God's sovereign decree of election, okay? That even before, um, you know, a believer is saved in space and time, that moment of regeneration and justification, they've been elected to be saved, and that moment is certainly going to happen, right? You tracking with me? He could be communicating that. I think far more likely is the second one, that Bunyan is alluding to his own experience, and he's talking about a nominal Christian someone who thinks they're a Christian and would claim to be a Christian before they actually are, okay? And he does that throughout in Grace Abounding. He's talking about himself. Here's one example why I would think that. In Grace Abounding, he writes about this. This is before he comes to the Bedford Church and is introduced to John Gifford and the women there. He writes this about himself. He, historical background, he marries a believer, okay? He marries a believing woman, and he is not a believer, Okay? Um, and he tries to clean up his life because he marries this lady. And he writes about this here. Wherefore, I fell to some outward reformation, external, changing his life, both in my words and life, and did set the commandments before me for my way to heaven. So how is he trying to get to heaven? Commandments. He's seeking to obey, right? For though as yet I was nothing but a poor painted hypocrite. Notice, I mean, this is very sad here at the end. Yet I loved to be talked of as one that was truly godly. I was proud of my godliness. And indeed, I did all I did either to be seen of or to be spoken of by man. So probably I think this is what he has in mind here. Uh, A nominal Christian, someone who's truly not saved. So he goes on. Obstinate, what are the things that you seek since you leave all of the world to find them? I seek an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and does not fade away. That's a quote from 1 Peter 1.4, right? And is laid up in heaven, being secure there, ready to be bestowed at the appointed time upon those that diligently seek it. Read about it, if you will, in my book. Obstinate. Tush! This is nonsense. Put away your foolish book. Tell me whether you will return with us or not. 
Christian, no, not for a moment, because I have laid my hand to the plow and will not look back. That's Luke 9, 62, as he references. Come then, neighbor Pliable, let us turn about and go home without him. He represents those crazy-headed coxcombs. He's talking about crazy chickens, okay? Um, Who, when possessed by some blind passion, are wiser in their own eyes than seven men who can offer a reason. Pliable, perhaps you are right. But don't be so critical. If what good Christian says is true, then the things that he seeks after are better than ours. My heart is inclined to go with my neighbor. What? Are there more fools than one? Be ruled, be, this line is just crazy. Be ruled by me and go back. Like he has very high, arrogant opinions of himself. Like I'm in charge of you. Like do what I say. It's crazy. Very arrogant. Who knows where such a brain sick fellow will lead you. I insist go back, go back and be wise. He goes on, come with me, neighbor Pliable. There are such things to be had which I spoke of and many more glories besides. If you do not believe me, then read here in my book. He's pointing him to scripture. For assuredly, the truth of what is expressed in these pages has been fully confirmed by the blood of he who wrote it. Probably an allusion there to Hebrews, the end of Hebrews 13. Well, neighbor obstinate, I begin to come to a point of decision. I intend to go along with this good man and throw in my lot with him. But my good companion, do you know the way to this desirable place? Christian says, I've been directed by a man whose name is Evangelist to hasten toward a little gate that is before us, the wicked gate, where we will receive further instruction about the way ahead. Come then, my good neighbor, let us be on our way. So both of them went on together, obstinate, and I will go back to my own place. I will be no companion of such misled, fantastical, ridiculous fellows. That's basically what he's saying. So obstinate goes back to the city of destruction, pliable joins Christian. And as you can guess by his name, it's not going to last that long. And yes, so there's, there's, there's points in Pilgrim's Progress. It's okay. You can kind of chuckle, um, but also realize, I mean, the sadness of the biblical truth being conveyed, right? You know, where, how many people there are that are pliable. Um, so anyways, we'll stop there. Pretty good on time. I'm happy we made it that far. Next week, we're going to look at the Slough of Despond, which is the next section well, actually, I think how Horner breaks up the book, uh, Christian and Pliable talk a little bit, then the slew of despond. We'll definitely go through that and hopefully get into Mr. Worldly Wiseman. So if you want to read the next couple chapters, go ahead and do that. And you are dismissed. <laughs>